Good morning, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. And I'm coming to you today, not from my studio beneath the sky, tucked away under the tall timbers of Colorado, but we are on the road uh, just for a quick up and back this weekend. And uh, so I'm from a, coming to you from a hotel. Those of you that are our premier subscribers, you may recognize a different background, but uh, it's a great day, great way to start the week. Got a wonderful uh, guest, uh, Dr. Andy Woods is going to be with us here shortly. Uh, today is Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. Hard to believe we're already three weeks into the new year. It's just uh, flying by. Uh, but what a week we've got lined up this week. We kick it off with Dr. Woods, and uh, we're going to be talking today about the rapture, the tribulation, the wrath of God, and talking about the pre-wrath view. So I'll bring him on in just a second. We've got Mondo Gonzalez tomorrow, later this week. We've got Lucas Doremus back on for his first podcast of the new year. He's going to be talking about the enticing illusion of quantum computing, how so many scientists and folks think it's going to save the day, but there are some obvious limitations uh, uh, on that. We've got Brad Maston back on Friday with his first uh, appearance of the new year. So a lot of your favorite guests uh, joining us this week. Of course, Wednesday will be World Events Update with uh, with Randy. Last week was a power-packed week. Uh, still getting some great feedback about Alex Newman and Pete Garcia on Thursday and Friday. Uh, hope you'll take the time to to watch those uh, watch those videos. Uh, and we've also started reposting our videos on on uh, YouTube. We're kind of taking a second shot at that after being kicked off a couple of years ago. Uh, so we'll see how long it lasts. But for those of you that prefer YouTube over Rumble, you can spread the word. Our podcasts are now on uh, YouTube as well. Well, uh, I was in uh, yesterday, uh, Pro uh, Proverbs 21, actually last night, kind of thinking ahead uh, to today. And uh, one of the verses that jumped off the page at me was verse 12. Proverbs 21, 12 says, The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wickedness, the, the wicked for their wickedness. And it was just one of those things where, you know, as uh, Howard Hendricks would say, watch for things that are repeated. And three times in this short little couplet, you've got the word wicked. <laughs> it's like it seems to be focusing on the wicked. The Lord overthrows the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked and for their wickedness. And it's just a great reminder to me that as, as much evil as there is in this messed up world where Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the God of this age, God's watching. And one day, all of those uh, wicked evil doers that are conspiring with uh, Satan and trying to overthrow God, as we read about in Psalm 2, they'll get theirs. They'll get what's coming to them. God will even things out. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So take heart. Uh, even though it looks like at times Satan may win a battle here or there, we know who wins in the end. And uh, that's a good verse also to introduce our topic for today. And that is the pre-wrath rapture. I was talking to some folks at dinner last night who had not uh, really had not heard of that, that view and were kind of wondering what it's about. So uh, I'm going to introduce our guest now, Dr. Andy Woods, uh, president of Chafer Seminary, pastor of Sugarland Bible Church, and certainly needs little introduction with our group, just a well-known Bible prophecy teacher and experts. We've known each other for over 20 years and had the opportunity to do ministry together in a variety of contexts. We'll be together in Orlando here coming up for the Prophecy Summit. Um, but it's just a privilege and honor to have you with us this morning, Dr. Woods. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's kind of start, if you will, with maybe a pre-wrath rapture for dummies, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think I might fall into that category sometimes. But uh Basically, uh, give us kind of what, what distinguishes the so-called pre-wrath view of the timing of the rapture from the traditional dispensational view. Well, I think the reason there's confusion on it is their, their term that they use to describe themselves doesn't tell you what, what they believe. Hmm. I mean, you hear the words pre-wrath. I mean, I mean I'm pre-wrath. <laughs> right. know, I just think the whole seven-year tribulation period is God's wrath but basically what they mean and they've got the tribulation period divided into three parts I mean they've got their first half and second half like we have but they take the second half and and divide it and base their basic premise is that the wrath of God doesn't start until somewhere into you know post uh, the middle 
of the second half of the tribulation period. So if you're really trying to come up with a name to identify them, uh, a lot of our guys call them, call them, and they don't like this, but they call, we call them three quarters rapturists. <laughs> that's, so, that's so they, right. <laughs> so, so basically the final 25% and they'll quibble with that because they don't say it's exactly 25%, but it's the only conceptual tool I know how, of how to really explain what they're saying. Cause they don't really come out and tell you what they believe right away. Cause I think they're trying to pick off, you know, uh, true pre-wrath people like us, but, and draw them into confusion. But, you know, it's it's the the last twenty five percent is the wrath of God, and so since the church has promised an exemption from God's wrath, you know, we're here for three quarters of the tribulation, and everything that's happened prior to that last twenty five percent is not God's wrath; it's right. Satan's wrath or man's wrath, but not God's wrath. So yeah, that's so, basically it. Exactly. Yeah. So a point of. Uh, agreement would be, as you just said, all of us understand and believe that uh, the church, the body of Christ, will not be here when the wrath of God is poured out, in the prophetic wrath of God. And uh, and that's pretty clear from 1 Thess 1.10, 1 Thess 5.9, and so forth. But it really comes down to defining biblically what is the wrath of God. Uh, now, uh, you, you know, you say, and I've mentioned this many times too through the years, that it's, you know, roughly halfway through the second half is when they think the yeah. wrath of God starts. Is there a particular point in the, the narrative of Revelation that they tie the, the, the commencement of the wrath of God to? Is it one of the trumpet judgments? What, where, do they, where do they put that? Well, it's, it's basically by the time you get to the um, sixth uh, seal judgment where the unbelievers, you know, and that's the first time the word wrath is used in this sequence of end time events. They say the great day of his wrath has come. And so they basically say that the wrath of God starts, you know, either right there or just before there. And they're not, they don't even agree with themselves on everything. Just like pre-trib people don't agree on every single issue, but some would say it starts a little before that time period or it starts at that time period or a little bit after that time period. And one of their big arguments is, well, that's the first time you see the word wrath or orge. So the, a lot of stuff is connected with the uh, sixth seal judgment. Yeah. And, and certainly we would agree because it's, it's a point not in dispute that that is the first time orge appears. So in their scheme, the first five, uh, seal judgments kind mm -hmm. of go through the first half of the tribulation into the second half, and by the time you get to the sixth seal, they think you're well into the second half, and that's when the wrath of God starts. Is that right? Right. Yeah, it's basically. So, so now it, it's always struck me as odd. I remember having a conversation with a pastor about this who was a super nice guy, which you know, thankfully, not all the pre-wrath guys are you know polemic and argumentative and trying to you know. Uh, win the day. Some of them are just gracious guys who've been influenced by um, uh, Marv Rosenthal. He's the one who really popularized this view. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, there was a fellow named Van Campen. That's right. That yeah. Did some writing on this. And then it's Rosenthal, the scholar who used to be, you know, in our camp, pre-tribulational mm -hmm. that moved into this. And so his book, and now you've got some modern day guys. Um, Alan Kirshner, you know, has a whole, it's like a single issue ministry, as far as I can tell, where he's totally devoted to advancing this viewpoint. So they've got some younger guys now, you know, picking up the, the baton, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some of them, you know, they're certainly, they love the Lord as like we do, and they're doing their best to handle scripture. But it's always struck me as odd that they would appeal to, to Revelation 6, because it, it seems that maybe this is a good place to start in sort of refuting their position. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems to me the text is pretty plain that by that time, the wrath has already come. And they've been, you know, it's, it's almost like it's a summary statement of the sealed judgments Plus, you've got chapters four and five, that, that theodicy, which they're, they're crying out, who is worthy to open the seals, the idea being the seals of God's wrath. And then they say, the lamb, he is worthy. So it just seems like when the first seal is opened, that's 
the wrath of God. Are we reading too much into the text, or, or, or can you kind of connect those dots for us? Well, I mean, Revelation 6, 16, and 17 is not, I don't think that's when the wrath of God starts. That's when the pagans, you know, these are unbelievers talking. <laughs> they finally figure out it's a God, God's wrath. And when they say the, the great day of his wrath has come, you know, there's a grammatical argument to be made that that is backing up all the way to the beginning of the chapter. And remember what's precipitated these events. You know, chapter five comes before chapter six. <laughs> I know that's a heavy theological point, but that's that's Jesus. why everybody thinks you're so brilliant. It's 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 observations like that. You know. Yeah, and Jesus takes the seven-sealed scroll in chapter 5, which is the title deed to the earth, and then in chapter 6, he starts to, you know, unpeel the various seals, and every time that happens, a judgment hits the planet. So it's very clear that that is the wrath of the Lamb, because Jesus opening the seven-sealed scroll is causing all of these judgments in Revelation 6. It's just the pagans finally figure out what's going on uh, at the end of chapter six. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I have to, and, and this is part of the frustration. I don't know if I have to see the word wrath earlier to conclude it's God's wrath. For example, I think we would both believe that the flood was God's wrath. Mm-hmm. And the book of Genesis also describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as God's wrath. I'm not sure I see the word wrath in the flood narrative for me to have to conclude it's God's wrath. I mean, conceptually, it's there. Right. And, you know, when we think of the term wrath in Scripture, you've got um, soteriological wrath. You know, those that are unbelievers are children of wrath. Those that are believers are sons of God. You've got just outpouring over throughout human history of God's wrath at different points, as you said, like the global flood. But there's the prophetic wrath of God, which is what we're uh, talking about. And, you know, that basically uh, is, you know, you could go to passages like Zephaniah, uh, mm-hmm. chapter one, I think it is, talks about the day of the Lord's wrath and uh, Joel. And so uh, the, the, the wrath of God is predicted in the Old Testament to uh, occur in a climactic sense, is it not, in the end times, in connection with... Uh, the the return of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon and the establishment of the kingdom. Is that right? Right. And one of the things to understand is Revelation has 404 verses in it. 278 are allusions to the Old Testament. Wow. And when you, so it's not like Revelation is giving you a lot of new data. What it's doing is it's taking the scattered prophecies of the Old Testament and it's assembling it in a chronological framework. Mm. Uh, And so essentially when you go into um, Old Testament prophets, you quoted Zephaniah, there's just a ton of stuff in Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. As those prophets are describing the the eschatological judgment of God, they connect uh, famine, which is in Revelation 6, uh, war, uh, all of the things that are mentioned in Revelation 6, they connect it with God's wrath in the Old Testament. So by the time I read the book of Revelation, I should already have that background in mind. So therefore, I don't have to insert the word wrath in Revelation 6 to see it as God's wrath. The Old Testament has already already done that for me. Mm-hmm. So, And I think this is a problem with their perspective because Alan Kirshner is like a New Testament scholar. I mean, he's credentialed in Greek and, you know, PhD. And I see this almost as a handicap in a certain sense, because he's totally focused, as most experts are. Uh, They're focused on just their part of the Bible that they're an expert in. And he's not seeing, in my opinion, the big picture where the Old Testament has already connected the dots. And John, in 278 verses, is expecting us to understand the Old Testament. And so by the time you read Jeremiah, Isaiah, you you know it's God's wrath because the Old Testament's already connected these various uh, things that are happening in these seal judgments to his anger or indignation or wrath. Yeah, 
Yeah, the righteous indignation. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's almost like we're having that same aha moment that the people on earth at the time it's going on are, ha are having as we read it. We're going, ah, this yeah. sounds very much like the, the outpouring of God's wrath uh, that uh, in the narrative of, of Revelation they were setting the stage for in chapters four and five. So uh, there also seems to be a misunderstanding of how Daniel's 70th week kind of fits into the bigger picture of Bible prophecy, especially as it relates to the distinction between Israel and the church, because even though we all agree the church won't be here during the wrath of God, and so in that sense, the pre-wrath view and the, and the pre-tribulation view, as you said, we're pre-wrath, if that's the way you want to define it, uh, but not in the way they define it, you know, th that distinguishes our views from, say, the post-trib view or the historic pre-mill view or some of those views that really just the tribulation is not unique really in, in any way, uh, but it does seem like the pre-wrath rapture view blurs that distinction a bit, don't they? Yeah, I mean, the 70 weeks is for Israel, and it's it's God is dealing again with the nation of Israel in the sense that they're his instrument to reach a lost and dying world. Um, and so by definition, the church can't be present. Um, now, there is a counter-argument that they use. They say, well, you know, Israel and the church are present today on the earth at the same time. You know, we have Israel regathered in, un you know, in unbelief, 1948, and here's the church. Uh, you see Israel and the church together. I think the word ecclesia is mentioned like 20 times in the book of Acts, and the word Israel is mentioned 20 times. So they say, see, they're there they are together in the book of Acts. Why can't they be together in the tribulation period? Well, the issue is usability. It's not just two entities coexisting. God doesn't use both at the same time. His hand is right now on the church, so he's not using Israel. And the day is going to come where he's going to be using Israel, so he won't be using the church. So I think they, and they, when they make this counter-argument of just coexistence, they're not really understanding that we're not arguing it from the position of coexistence. We're arguing it from the position of usability or who is going to be the preeminent servant of God in that time period. So that, when it's very clear, Israel is the preeminent servant of God in the tribulation. The world is being evangelized through the 144,000. So there's no need for the church to be on the earth. And that's why there is no single reference to the church on the earth in Revelation 6 through 19, which describes this seven-year tribulation period in more detail than any other place in the whole Bible. And it's not just the word. You know, the word, as you know, ecclesia is used 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3, but when you get to the futuristic section of the book of Revelation, the word totally disappears. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the word, it's the concept, because the concept of the church is Jew, Gentile, united into one new spiritual man called the body of Christ. That Paul develops that in Ephesians 2 and 3. You know, Galatians 3, etc., 1 Corinthians 12, that concept is gone from the earth, you know, during the events of the tribulation period. So we're not just arguing the absence of the word, we're arguing the exact the absence of a whole Pauline concept where uh, you get to Revelation and clearly there's national divisions again. Mm -hmm. The two Jewish witnesses, the you know, the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars being attacked by Satan, Revelation 12, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. That's a national concept that is foreign to the church age. And so you start putting all this stuff together and you start to see why the church can't be present. Yeah. So we're talking with Dr. Andy Woods uh, about the pre-wrath rapture view and uh so, yeah, you know, it seems like there's a clear teaching in Scripture that at any point God has one group uh, sort of center stage. If you want to think of the, the world or the earth as a, as a stage, um, it is uh, clear that 
God uh, set Israel temporarily aside, as Paul explains in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 23, during that fateful final week of his earthly life, before he walked down the Via Dolorosa and ultimately uh, paid the penalty for the sins of all mankind, but he, he told the Jewish leaders, look, uh, well, earlier in, in Matthew, I think 21 or 22, he said, I'm going to take this kingdom from you and give it to a future nation of leaders that is worthy of it. And then he said in chapter 23 to the unbelieving Jewish leaders of his day, you're not going to see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Clearly, there seems to be uh, this moment approaching when God is is done with Israel for now, but as uh, the Bible makes clear that's not permanent. There is a future for national Israel, uh, else all the the Old Testament prophecies in great detail, including you know land boundaries, temples, thrones, you know all of that, the dimensions of the temple and Ezekiel, all of that would make no sense. Uh, but you come to Romans and and Paul says that blindness right now in part has happened to Israel. It's in part because of course there are Jews today who believe the gospel and are saved, but as a nation, have re they have rejected a Christ. And so God's in God's divine design, it's the church that are his primary envoys today. We're to be a light in this perverse generation, as Paul states. Uh, but at some point in the future, uh, the church is going to be rescued from this present evil age uh, prior to the wrath of God. We know that from 1 Thessalonians. And Israel is going to come in for the final act, you know, they've exited for a while, now they're going to come enter stage left or whatever, and and now they're back in the spotlight, so to speak. I mean, the Jewish flavor of, you know, the seven-year tribulation is unmistakable. I mean, as you said, it goes back to Daniel's prophecy, where it's a prophecy for your people and your holy city. That's clearly Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, you know, you've got all of the Jewish witnesses from each of the 12 tribes. You've got the the uh, the references to people gathering in the, the valley of Megiddo. You've got just it's all focused on uh, on Israel, uh, and then of course uh, the church comes back. That's the another issue you've got with putting the church in any part of that tribulation is that it seems like the church, depending on how you take the twenty four elders, is already has already been rewarded and is already in heaven prior to yeah. the the first seal of the six seals, right? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, if there is a reference to the church in Revelation 6 through 19, it's in heaven. Right. So it talks about the seven lampstands, seven lamps, seven lampstands, and it says in Revelation 1, these are the seven churches, and you get over to Revelation 4, verse 5, and the lamps, uh, lampstands are in heaven. And you already mentioned the 24 elders. I mean, I think if you just... Um, you know, read about the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and study what Jesus says about the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you'll see some amazing parallels. Mm -hmm. I mean, not the least of which they're called elders. You know, the church is supposed to be governed by elders, not judges and kings, you know, the way we had in the Old Testament. So the 24 elders, who can't be angels, by the way, because they're distinguished from the angels in Revelation 5, verse 9, and Revelation 7, verse 9. But anyway, the 24 elders are in heaven. So, I mean, God is not going to use Israel and the church at the same time. When his hand is on the church, it's not on Israel. When his hand is on Israel, it's not on the church. And as far as I know, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. There is no time in history where God stops using the church. So the church, by definition, has to be translated to heaven uh, so he can put his hand back on Israel since he doesn't use both groups, you know, concurrently. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting to me that in that the church, of course, is a mystery. Paul makes that clear in uh, Ephesians 3. Uh, we also see the rapture as a unique blessing for the church, and it's a mystery according to 1 Corinthians 15. A mystery in Scripture is uh, newly revealed information, something previously undisclosed, now being explained. Um, you've written extensively about Mystery Babylon. We'll have to have you on another time to talk about Babylon. That, that would be a yeah. fascinating discussion. But um, it's interesting that given the mystery nature of the church, uh, it comes on the scene suddenly and unexpectedly, 
unexpectedly, at least in terms of the Old Testament prophets, didn't foretell it. Uh, it certainly fits well and does not contradict the Old Testament. For example, you see this gap of time in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy between the 69th and 70th week in Daniel's prophecy itself, and it tells us some things that are going to happen in there. It doesn't mention the church, but it's an unspecified length of time, so the New Testament comes along and gives us further development of God's plan of the ages. But the church comes on the scene suddenly on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and it disappears from the scene suddenly at the rapture in the twinkling of an eye. So, you know, that that also sort of lends itself not to an you know, a prescribed specific moment in the midst of Daniel's 70 weeks for Israel, but rather something that sort of ends one phase of God's plan and sets the stage for the beginning of the next phase. So uh, in the time we have left, you know, just give us from your uh, perspective, and I know you taught on this at the pre-trib study group meeting in Dallas. We both were there for that. Uh, but just give us maybe some of the highlights of the biggest arguments against the pre-wrath view in your in your mindset. Well, I think there's a problem with any non-pre-tribulational view, including so-called pre-wrath, is they have to they have a burden that they need to meet, and their burden is they have to find the rapture somewhere in the tribulation period. I don't have that burden, neither do you, because we believe the rapture already happened by the time the tribulation period starts. And I think this is a problem with all these views. It's like, okay, well, you don't, you're not pre-trib. You tell me, you point somewhere, you know, where the rapture occurs. So a lot of guys that are mid-trib, well, you know, want to talk about the two witnesses, you know, that are taken to heaven. Well, that's, that's the two witnesses <laughs> taken to heaven. That's not, right. the, that's not the church. And it's the same problem with uh, pre-wrath. And Marvin Rosenthal and others try to argue that the great multitude, you know, that shows up in heaven following the um, ministry of the 144,000, you know, John says, Revelation 7, 13, and 14, then one of the elders answered me saying, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I said, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of uh, the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and, and et cetera. So they, they point to that as the rapture. Well, that, that's not the rapture because the present tense verb translated come, erkomai is used, which is describing a gradual process, a kind of a continuous process. You just articulated what the rapture is. It's something you use the word suddenly. Uh, Paul uses the word, you know, atomos, where we get the word atom, which is something so tiny you can't divide it. Uh, You know, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, uh, just like the day of Pentecost started, you know, miraculously, the church age will end miraculously. So there's not some kind of gradual process at all. And this is describing more of a process. So this fits better our perspective where following the rapture of the church, the 144,000 are going to reach many people. And as they are martyred, because many of them will be martyred, uh, they gradually, their souls gradually arrive in heaven. So this, this is describing a process, you know, not something instantaneous. And then they jump over to Matthew 24, 31 try to find the rapture over there. Uh, the word trumpet, they try to connect it with Paul's trumpet as if God can't have two different trumpets. And, you know, poor God, he's only confined to one trumpet, I guess. But, um, you know, over in Matthew twenty four thirty one, and you know the, the text, it, he'll sound the trumpet and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. That's a horizontal gathering of Israel. At the end of the tribulation period, in fulfillment of Isaiah 27, verse 13, um, that's, that has nothing to do with the rapture, which is a harpazo vertical, you know, catching up. So I guess what I'm trying to say is all of these non-pre-trib views, to me, that's their Achilles heel. They cannot locate the rapture anywhere in the tribulation period. 
and so-called pre-wrath people, you know, have that exact same problem. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, they're you know they're they're it's almost like they're bringing their presupposition to the yeah. text, which we all are guilty of at times. That's a real challenge that sure. we all need to, to to remember when studying the Word of God. But uh, if they believe the rapture is going to happen somewhere in the second half of the tribulation, then they start looking for rapture-sounding passages and plug it in there. But as you said, upon careful scrutiny, there are some, in some cases, grammatical, in some cases, contextual reasons. That can't be uh, the case. But yeah, there, God uses trumpets all throughout the Bible. I mean, I, I certainly don't think anybody would put the rapture uh, at the Battle of Jericho, you know. So, uh, I mean, you know, to think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an example of improper cross-referencing. I remember in my PhD studies, uh, sitting under Mike Stallard, uh, really that's when the light bulb went off for me, that so much of, of, of erroneous interpretation arises out of a a poor synthesis between scriptures, connecting dots that can't be connected. I remember one time when I was teaching full-time, uh, I taught hermeneutics for six years at the college level and six at the seminary level. And in one of my college classes, I had a student that connected the fire, the tongue, cloven tongues of fire in, in, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost with the fire that Paul warmed his hands by on the island of Malta after the shipwreck, and he has said that that was the Holy Spirit on that island, you know. I mean, we can start connecting dots, you know, arbitrarily just because of similar wording, but, you know, that's not proper Bible study method. We've got to look at the context. And in Matthew 24, 31, it's so abundantly clear that this is after the tribulation. Verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's when the Son of Man will come, and the language there of the cosmic signs uh, parallels perfectly with mm -hmm. Joel and other passages. It, the the regathering of the elect, elect is clearly a term used of of Israel in this Jewish context of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, that, as you said, points back to not just Isaiah twenty seven thirteen, but Deuteronomy thirty verse three, and just about every Old Testament prophet talks about this promise of an end times regathering. So. Yeah, I think you're right. This idea that they've got to to find a proof text, so to speak, uh, that puts the rapture in the tribulation, but I think it falls short. What what else would you say is a sort of a, a weak spot of their argument? Well, they make a big deal about the thulipsis orge distinction. Thulipsis, great word, Greek word for tribulations, and then orge is the word for. Uh, translated wrath and so what they're basically trying to say is prior to the god's wrath being poured out in the final 25 percent or more the world is just experiencing tribulations you know revelation 7 verse 14 i believe uses that word thulipsis you know these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they're trying to argue that that that's a different word than wrath and after all, Jesus did say in the world, you'll have tribulations. Well, they're not really um, grasping that those are not technical words. In other words, you know, a technical word is a word that always means the same thing everywhere it's used. There could be a huge semantic overlap, you know, between thulipsis and orge. And just to give you one example, when you go over to the book of Romans, chapter 2, you know, where Paul is, is clearly describing end-time judgments, he, um, he inter, interweaves both words together. So he says in Romans 2, verse 8, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey uh, unrighteousness, wrath, or gay, and indignation. But then verse 9 says there will be great tribulation. That's thulipsis. So he just switched from orge to thulipsis. So in Paul's mind, you can use both to describe the eschatological wrath of God. Mm -hmm. So, you know, therefore to, you know, make this case that orge starts later and everything prior is thulipsis is not understanding that there's a huge semantic overlap, you know, between those words. It's like the old Venn diagrams, you know, we used to draw in geometry, you know, two circles that overlap. And then you kind of shade in the area, you know, where the circles overlap. That's what's going on with the ellipsis and orge. 
So to get some long-winded lecture from them about Philipsis is here, but Orge is later, they're not really understanding the overlap between those terms. Yeah, it's it's what Carson would call, D.A. Carson would call the fallacy yeah. of technical meaning, you know. Um, and we, we like to do that because it, it makes interpretation a little more cut and dried if, if every word had a technical meaning. Uh, but context, 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 context determines yeah. meaning. And yeah, so they definitely hang their hat on that uh, distinction, but I think it's uh, it's provably uh, false, as you just said. All we have to do is to prove it is to show there's examples where the two words overlap, and you just did that there in the Romans two. All right, what else? Well, eminency. You know, they don't like eminency, mm-hmm. and I've I've talked to a lot of pre wrath people, and just like you can ask this question to a mid or post a tribulationalist, it's just a simple question: Can Jesus come back today? Mm-hmm. And they say no. Well, our belief is uh, he can come back. He's right at the door. Right. There's countless passages describing his return in the rapture, you know, where there's no preceding series of prophetic events that have to happen first. Now, I, I happen to think, as do you, that that's a powerful incentive for godly living. And this is why I think this issue is important. I mean, if, if Jesus can come back, in the next split second, we live differently. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Matt, I, I realize the rapture is not in Matthew 24, but towards the end of Matthew 24, there's kind of an illustration of this where the man says, you know, my master's not coming for a long time. Yeah. And he starts to beat his servants. Right. So eminency has an effect on how we live. I mean, if, if you're working for someone and he says, I'll be back in six months, versus I can poke my head in the door at any second, you, you work dif- <laughs> You work differently depending on the situation. So I think this is why this doctrine of eminency is important, has a natural stimulus on holy living, and all of these non-pre-tribulational views, yeah. including pre, pre, so-called pre-wrath, they, they deny eminency. Yeah, so let's define some terms here for. I know most of our listeners are, are, are well yeah. acquainted with that because I've I've talked about it a lot, and but we're picking up new listeners all the time. So, the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture is the very clear teaching in Scripture that the rapture could happen at any moment. Doesn't mean it's going to happen today, but it means it could happen today. That there are no prophetic uh, uh, prophecies, no prophecies that have to be fulfilled prior to the rapture. And so, as you say, when you ask some of these uh, folks who hold a viewpoint on the timing of the rapture that does not involve imminency, could the rapture happen today? They would say no, because in their scheme, you have to have had the seal judgments, most of the trumpet judgments. You have to have had all of these clearly identifiable major earth-shaking events take place before the rapture happens. And so it it really does destroy imminency. Uh, by the way, speaking of that passage in those those watchfulness passages in the Olivet Discourse, uh, verse 43, again, we know this isn't talking about the rapture, but it's the same principle. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Uh, mm-hmm. Seven times the New Testament uses the word apek decamai, uh, every time it's in the context of the rapture, it means eagerly waiting. Um, well, why would you eagerly wait for something that you know at 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 a minimum isn't going to happen for at least you know say four years, four and a half years? Um, if I know that my uh, you know guests are going to be visiting you know at Easter, well, I'm not going to you know stand by the front door watching the driveway today. Right, because I know they're, they're, they've got quite. You know, I've got few few months before they're going to be here. So it is a passionate a teaching in Scripture of of a motivation, a passionate motivation for us to expect and 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 wait for the Lord. Um, you know, uh, I'm preaching through First Thessalonians right now, um, and uh, we're going to go to Second Thessalonians next. I thought it'd be better to start with First Thessalonians and then then go to Second Thessalonians, but, uh, but anyway. Nice. Um, you know, that that's a repeated theme there, is that in light of the imminent return of Christ, it changes your lives. But John put it this way in 1 John, um, I can't think of the passage, not two, anyway, uh, uh, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you will not be ashamed 
but have confidence at his coming. And that's not talking about confidence in heaven or hell and all that. Our eternal security is uh, set uh, and our assurance is set the moment we trust in Christ. And, and by the way, this would be a good opportunity in case we've uh, picked up some listeners here who maybe are just kind of intrigued by the whole notion of end times prophecy, looking at what's going on around us. And someone said, hey, you ought to hear this Dr. Andy Woods guy. He's pretty smart. And so they start listening. But maybe you don't know for certain that you're going to spend eternity in heaven. Well, let me, uh, let me tell you what Jesus said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. See, everyone's a sinner. We're all in the same boat. That sin comes at a steep penalty. It comes with a penalty of eternal separation from a holy God in a literal place of torment called hell. Uh, but God loved the world so much that he provided a remedy for our own predicament. We got ourselves into this with our own free will when we did not heed his warning and took a great big bite out of that proverbial apple, uh, which, by the way, God didn't force us to do. That's the nature of humanity is he gave us free will, warned us about it uh, because he loved us so much, kind of like a parent warning their child, don't touch the hot stove. But nevertheless, we didn't heed the warning, so we brought judgment upon ourselves. But God loved the world so much that he took the extraordinary step of uh, sending his eternal son, our Savior, to the earth to take our sins upon him, to pay our sin debt, our penalty, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And having defeated death, hell, and the grave, he now offers freely to all the gift of eternal life, if you'll simply uh, believe him for it. And so uh, I hope if you've not trusted Christ today that Today is the day of salvation in your life that you'll, in simple childlike faith, trust in the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. But as a believer, those who've already trusted Christ, uh, it's, it's exciting to think today could be the day. And we, we have this attitude of expectancy. Uh, and, and that's what that, you know, that eagerly awaiting, as we talked about, Apec Decami, really alludes to. And it really does, uh, Dr. Woods, change the whole... Uh, approach to Christian living if if we think that, you know, the rapture isn't going to happen until several years down the road at a prescribed uh, time. So uh, we've got maybe time for one more, but any any other argument that you've come across that you think is a trouble spot for the pre-wrath rapture view? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is the restrainer. You know, you're you're teaching Thessalonians, you're going to get to Second Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, and you're going to have to explain to people who you think the restrainer is. I think there's a very strong case to be made that the restrainer there is the eternally existent third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who through the church, because he indwells us, is restraining uh, the advent of the Antichrist currently. Um, that's a reasonable interpretation, um, but they think the res- they don't like that because they've got to have the church in roughly three quarters of the tribulation. So you can't have the restrainer being taken away ahead of time because that would mean that the, the Holy Spirit indwelling the containers of the church would be taken ahead of time. So you have to come up with a different definition of restrainer, and they think it's Michael the archangel. I think that's a problem because Jude 9 indicates that Michael, when he got into an argument of some kind uh, about the body of Moses with Satan, he, he, Jude 9 says he wouldn't dare bring a railing accusation you know, against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So I don't think Michael likes to openly go out and fight Satan. And what this Michael the Archangel view is saying is Michael the Archangel has been actively holding back Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years. And as we both know, when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to be a satanic masterpiece. Uh, he'll, you know, Satan is going to work through the Antichrist perhaps like he's worked through no other human since Judas Iscariot, by the way. Uh, Satan indwelled Judas, John 13, 27 says that. And I think Satan is actually going to go into the Antichrist. That's why that expression, son of perdition, is only used of Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and Judas, uh, John 17, verse 12, I think it is. But, you know, they've, they've got to have Michael holding back Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years Whereas Jude 9 indicates that Michael doesn't even like to argue with Satan about anything. 
including the body of Moses. And by the way, as you, as you know, and you're, and you're going to get to this in your studies, the participle restrainer uh, shifts in gender from neuter, I think it is, verse 6, to masculine, verse 7. And that fits the Holy Spirit view really well, because mm-hmm. pneuma, spirit, is a neuter noun, yet Jesus frequently used the masculine pronoun he to describe the spirit. You know, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But how does the Michael, the archangel view, handle that switch in gender? I mean, is yeah. Michael is Michael to transgender? <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I guess this day and age you can have that kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know. That's just another little problem. And you know, these guys. I, I know we're getting ready to wrap up, but these these pre wrath guys are so good at putting us on the defense. You know, they want to talk about John Nelson Darby and. And suddenly the, the whole spotlight comes on to us defending John Nelson Darby or something. And they, it's almost like they never have to, in the course of discussion, answer the gaping problems, you know, in, in their view. Yeah. So if, if you don't like pre-trib, you guys are going to have to give me something better, a better model to work with. And everything I've seen, it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't meet the standard. So uh, I don't think any eschatological system is fail-safe. You know, um, we're all in the, the, the uh, process of growing mm-hmm. in our progressive sanctification. But to me, pre-trib has a lot fewer problems than their view. And they're very good at getting us to defend our problems. But when you put the spotlight back on them, they've got way more problems than we have. Yeah, you're so gracious. Uh, you know, I would... I would say, you know, not not as gracious as you, because I do, I do think it comes down to your entire hermeneutic, the entire understanding of God's plan of the ages and the distinction between Israel and the church. And I, and I know you agree with that, too. But you're right. The best data seems to support a pre-Daniel 70th week, pre-tribulation timing of the rapture. And just to kind of close the loop on that restrainer, you're absolutely right. You know, the the restrainer there, as both the the Greek text and just theological synthesis indicate, is the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Um, In the same way that he comes after Christ's ascension uh, on the day of Pentecost to to play a unique role in the church, take on new ministries that he had previously not had. Again, the Holy Spirit is God, so he's eternal. He never, there never has been a time when he didn't exist. It's not like the Holy Spirit was invented on the day of Pentecost, but he takes on a new role, and that role is tied to God's plan for the church, the purpose of the church. But when God's done with the church and the church is raptured, then that restraining influence in the world through the church is removed. And, you know, I've talked about many times in different conference presentations how, you know, we will never know maybe until we get to heaven just how many times over the last 2,000 years the presence of a born-again believer in, you know, some board meeting or some private discussion or maybe even in consultation with the President of the United States has had an influence in preventing something dastardly or evil or devastating. Um, And when that's gone, it's it's going to be literally all hell breaking loose on earth. And you're right. I mean, that seems to be connected. It, it is connected, the removal of the restraint, to the arrival of the Antichrist in Second Thess 2. So you can't have the church as the restraining influence be here at the same time that the Antichrist is reigning over a one world system. That's just, those aren't compatible. So as you said, they have to go and redefine who the restrainer is, and the best they can come up with is Michael, which is, I mean, there's no, that I know of, cross-reference, you know, that's a pure speculation. It's just like, let's see, who can we pick that's <laughs> obscure, obscure and might, you know, not have a problem, but you, uh, an excellent scholar, has kind of pointed out a, a problem there with the pronouns and, um, and, and also Michael's uh, hesitancy to be engaged in full-on assault with, with the devil at this time, which probably, if, if I'm looking for someone to restrain uh, the, the devil and his man of the hour, the Antichrist, 
uh, I'm probably not going to pick a guy who seems to shy away from that kind of a thing. So, uh, yeah. so anyway, excellent stuff. Great stuff. I know there's much more that we can uh, talk about. Tell, how, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you or your ministry or your resources. Well, if people want the full presentation that I did, because we only had a chance to do a little pieces here and there, they can get that at the pre-trib website, www.pre-trib.org. They can get the paper, they can get the PowerPoints, they can get the audio, they can get the video. And I think you talked there this year too. They can get your stuff there on the presentation you did. Um, but if you want to get track with my ministry, just go to andywoodsministries.org. You'll find our website. Uh, go to the app store, get our app. We're put, putting our new content up constantly. Just put in Andy Woods Ministries into the search engine in the app store, or you know you can get our stuff on podcast, Andy Woods Ministries into your search engine there. We've got our stuff on Rumble, Andy Woods Ministries. And if you're looking for another source, Sugarland Bible Church, we're real consistent. Our Facebook page, YouTube channel, website, we're putting our, it's probably best archived going way back since I've been at the church there. So if people want to find me, you know, I'm not hiding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out there. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Andy Woods Ministries. And uh, just so uh, thankful for your ministry and for your time today. And uh, thankful for you, our listeners, for listening again today. Uh, again, uh, you can stay in touch with our ministry at notbyworks.org. Uh, NBW Ministries is what you would put in to find us on all of the various uh, social media, YouTube, Brumble, podcasting, and, uh, and so forth. And uh, be sure to check out the free section uh, at our online store. If you click on the store button at notbyworks.org, uh, all kinds of different books and DVDs and things. But there's a, a section at the top called free. And we have dozens of different PDFs and articles and things uh, that you can download absolutely free and uh, share those, spread them around, charts. Uh, uh, we, uh, we, we, we do that so that you guys can use them in your own ministry and just for your own personal study. So uh, we're actually uh, working on a, an app as well. We have an app already, but we're coming out with a new, new one that's just going to be phenomenal. I've seen the prototype. We've got a meeting uh, later today, in fact, uh, to continue that process. We should be rolling that out sometime in the next few weeks. Really excited about that. But Dr. Woods, thanks again for your time. We'll, uh, we'll do this again. And uh, thanks again, listeners. Uh, have a great week. Uh, tune in again tomorrow. Again, we've got... Uh, uh, great lineup of guests. Mondo Gonzalez will be with us tomorrow to talk about the mystery of the Ten Kings. You don't want to miss that one. But God bless everyone and have a great week.